they make it sound so easy. <laughs> They're like, yeah, you just take cells from an animal and then you grow it in a bioreactor and then we have meat. It's easy, you know, but it's not easy. <laughs> That's not how it works. I'm Jane Z and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. So this show is about food and the future, and I couldn't think of anything more future food than lab-grown meat. A few of you have sent me videos about this new lab-grown steak that doesn't use animals and will save the planet. It's funny how these things are always so hype. And after talking with Julia, I'm starting to believe that this whole industry is mostly hype. We'll get into what lab-grown meat actually is, how it's grown and produced. We'll also dig into why it doesn't seem like a safe or healthy food and why it'll probably never scale because of the laws of biology and physics. But don't take my word for it. Julia Ranney has been following this industry for years. She is currently the Creative Communications and Policy Associate at the Center for Food Safety. The CFS Instagram page is truly a gem, highly recommend follow, and that is all kudos to Julia. If you are new here, welcome, welcome. We love to chat about all things food, farming, regenerating the land, so come join. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify for new episodes, and you can find me, Jane Z, on Instagram at farm.2.future. All right, on to the show. We are here in the studio with Julia Ranny. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I know this sounds creepy, but I saw you speak on a webinar about a year ago about this very topic of lab-grown proteins. And then I saw the article y'all came out with on Center for Food Safety a few months later. And I was like, man, this girl knows her stuff. I got to get her on the pod. So many of our listeners are curious about this topic in this new space. So excited to dive in. Um, first off, do you want to give us like your background of how you got into this kind of work. And also tell us a bit about Center for Food Safety and your work there. Totally, yeah. So I am a nerd. Um, and <laughs> I grew up in a family that, I don't know, our diet was just a little bit different from most of my friends. I remember we had like normal maple syrup as opposed to maybe the Kellogg syrup. And we would have certain things organic. And I was always just very precocious and curious about like, why are we doing that? And, you know, we were eating tofu before it was cool. Like, why are we eating tofu where my friends, you know, get sugary cereal and potato chips and I get like kashi and whatever, which, you know, kashi now is like, medium okay health-wise but back then you know it was different so since I was really young I was very curious about food and then when I became a teenager I was so impacted by food ink that it blew my mind after that I was like oh, there's this pesticide treadmill and and the corn goes to the cows and the corn is GMO and what is GMO and then what are all these weird ingredients like what is I was, I was, I loved gum, for example. I loved gum. And then I started to be like, okay, but actually what is gum? <laughs> like, what is gum made of? And I was like, what's BHT? Oh, it's this weird petroleum based rubber. And that's basically what we're chewing with artificial colors and sugars. Okay. Um, so I got, I got so fascinated about that. And then in school and whatnot, I got so fascinated about food policy, global food policy, food security, global development. Um, and then personally, I had a lot of 
food digestive issues. And so I got so interested in nutrition and holistic nutrition. And I think my life path was forged to be food related. And I also, for some reason, had a very interested fascination in genetic modification, synthetic biology, that kind of thing. I like science. So I, I like trying to understand how things work. How, what are the processes? Which is why food is so interesting because it touches everything and how do all of those things interact? And, you know, it's just, there's endless things you can unpack and it's cultural. It's just, it's so layered in a beautiful and complicated way. So I've, I've always been interested in food. And then I ended up interning with the Center for safety, doing food policy related work. As time went on, I sort of expanded and I did policy and research and communications, education, all the things, because for me, I understand all these complex topics. I get it. I understand like what a cell-based meat patent is saying about the transcriptor protein or whatever, you know, but like the average person does not. Or they don't understand the nuances related to GMOs even. They don't understand the the fact that it's not just GMOs. It's it's the pesticides and the inputs and the process. There's just so much that people don't know that I want them to know, but it's so complex that you have to figure out a way to break it down in a way that is palatable or you know just easy to understand in some way. So that's kind of my mission. And the Center for Food Safety is a food law policy and advocacy organization. And primarily we are a law firm. So we are involved in a lot of different cases. Big ones are glyphosate, dicamba, a lot of pesticide cases, a lot of cases related to confined animal feeding operations, kind of just runs the gamut of if it's food related, but a lot of it is focused on chemicals and like food safety, like titanium dioxide and Skittles and whatnot. Yeah, I saw that <laughs> post you guys did about Skittles, which by the way, y'all's content game is on fire. Like <laughs> love you. the climate memes, all that good stuff. Um, I know this is a sidetrack, but glyphosate, I've been hearing a lot about recently and reading a lot about, yeah. especially uh, when it comes to wheat farming. We just had a brand on the show called Long Table Pancakes, and they make pancake mixes with heirloom regeneratively grown mm. grapes. Uh, grains. And I was learning about the way that wheat farmers will spray down the entire farm with glyphosate right before harvest to kill the yeah. wheat before they harvest, which is mm -hmm. messed up. <laughs> like mm -hmm. that's the stuff we're eating. Like maybe that's the reason why I'm gluten intolerant. Yeah. I mean, yeah. well, there's not, uh, I don't think there's enough science to confirm that. Right. But right. you know, we know that glyphosate is bad for your gut microbiome. We do know that. So mm. I don't know. I, I learned about the desiccant situation too. And it, you know, it's not just wheat, it's oats, it's garbanzo beans, it's all sorts of things. And there are questions related even to organic production. If a product is organically produced, but it could be sprayed with glyphosate at the end, because I, you know, there's just a lot of nuance we don't necessarily know. Well, some of that we may come back to because cell-based, well, I don't know. You correct me on the term. Lab-grown <laughs> lab meats and lab-grown proteins, it's sort of adjacent to the plant-based meat world, right? Which relies heavily on like soybeans and other crops like that. Um, mm -hmm. But going into this topic, whenever I see videos about lab-grown meats, they're always like so techno optimist mm -hmm. futuristic like this is going to save the world we don't need kfos and it, like we don't need land like we'll just solve <laughs> all our problems so 
by like growing meat in a lab. Let's start with the basics of what are kind of the promises of lab-grown meat that are touted, and then what is it actually? Yeah, totally. So the promises, numerous. It is such a sexy, intriguing concept because the things they say are, it'll be cruelty-free. It'll be completely sustainable. Animal welfare concerns, there won't be any. It'll be great for antibiotic resistance. We won't be using antibiotics. That won't be an issue. There will be fewer risks of animal-related communicable diseases. Um, Food safety, we'll solve that. I think those are the main ones. The big one is sustainability. Like we're going to solve the issue of the world needs protein. We're going to fix the protein issue. So what it is, and they make it sound so easy. They're like, yeah, you just take cells from an animal and then you grow it in a bioreactor and then we have meat. It's easy, you know, but it's not easy. (laughs) That's not how it works. So you have to you have to biopsy an animal. Basically, you take a needle and you extract muscle cells. And then you take the muscle cells and you put them in a serum or some sort of culture and you convert them into stem cells because muscle cell can only grow so much. And a stem cell, you can turn into any different type of cell and they grow faster or they grow in a larger quantity. And then you put them in a bioreactor or a fermentation tank and you grow them at a mass scale with like a nutrient solution that helps them grow. A lot of the companies will talk about how, you know, it's just like, it's just like beer. Like think of a bioreactor. It's just like they produce alcohol in like a fermentation tank, you know, or they'll say, we've been doing tissue cell engineering for forever. None of this is new is what they'll say. But of course it's new. We're growing growing animal cells to eat them at at supposedly this never before seen scale with bioreactors at a size we've never seen before. With some substances they're adding to the bioreactor, we don't know what they are, but they're saying they can do it. There's this you know, ever-present techno-optimism, sense of optimism that we will be able to produce in these large bioreactors. What is a bioreactor? Is it just like a giant tank at a certain temperature? essentially. Yeah. If you've ever seen like a a food factory and you imagine like a a ginormous, it's like, I mean, it's kind of like a ginormous mixer, but it's sterile and you, it's for fermentation. So you have to like regulate the temperatures. Okay. Yeah. And that sounds like it probably requires a ton of energy. It sure does. <laughs> Interesting. Well, before we get into like sustainability, like metrics and stuff, I know it is still a pretty young industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned extracting the muscle cells from an animal. Mm-hmm. It, is that a painful process for the animals? Well, It's funny that you say that because when you read the literature from people who are super pro lab grown meat and, you know, they'll label it other things. They'll call it cultured meat, cell based meat, Franken meat. That's not what they'll call it, but other people (laughs) will call it that. There's a lot of claims that, well, we'll only have to do it like one time to get them from the animal and then we'll never have to do it again. Or they'll say like, it's essentially a painless process. That's what they'll say. 
And my mindset is, yeah, that's easy for a human to say. Like, how do you know that it's actually painless? You're not the animal. And mm. it's a small thing, but it is an important thing. I mean, the way we talk about animals in general is very dismissive. Yeah. It's like, how would we know? Well, maybe yeah. if they're squealing, but they wouldn't tell us yes. that if it was happening. <laughs> when we talk about like cruelty-free assumptions about this product is to get the culture to the stem cell place to get to the bioreactor, a lot of the times they have to use fetal bovine serum. And this is a serum that is commonly used in tissue cell engineering, but it's very expensive and it's certainly not cruelty-free um, because mm. basically you have to extract blood from a fetus of a pregnant cow that has been slaughtered. Yeah. <gasps> oh. oh. Yes. Yeah, well, that blood specifically is like amazing for cultivating these cells. And a lot of the companies have said, the top six companies have said, you know, once we get this product to market, we will not be using fetal bovine serum. We're figuring out plant-based serum solutions, alternatives. And, you know, that'd be awesome, but they don't tell us anything about what it actually is. Before we move on to the big kind of health and safety concerns, can you help us lay out who are the big players in this space? Yeah, totally. So this industry is global, but the majority of the companies are in the US. And then there's a bunch in Asia as well with a focus on cultivated seafood specifically. And that's kind of a different industry because of the way it's produced. Then there's some in Europe, but it's primarily in the U.S. And the biggest ones are Upside Foods. And, oh, I'm sorry, there's also a major industry in Israel. Mm, um, right. Yeah. Upside Foods, Aleph Farms, that's an Israeli company. Good Meat from Just Foods, that's probably the biggest one. It has the biggest investment really and upside foods, mm. which are the primary ones. And then there's a bunch of them. Mosa meats. I think that one is European. Finless foods. That one is seafood. There's many, but the main ones that you'll see everywhere being talked about are good meat and upside foods, which was previously Memphis meats. Gotcha. Um, I was going to ask yeah. about Memphis. Okay. Yeah. To me, lab-grown meat has a very sort of Silicon Valley darling feel to it. It has a lot of money from venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. And a lot of these venture capitalist firms are specifically focused on protein, so alternative protein. So they'll invest in lab-grown meat companies, but also, you know, Impossible Foods, all sorts of different alternate perfect day, which is trying to culture milk, anything that is like there's no real animals involved, supposedly. Um, and those are the primary investors. But there are also large investments, significant investments from multinational food and protein companies like JBS, the largest meat company in the world, Cargill, Tyson. I mean, the biggest ones, Nestle, ADM, Archer's Daniels Midland, Archer Daniel Midland. I always pronounce that incorrectly. Big, big industry players. And then you have some tech billionaires like Sergey Brin and Bill Gates invested, but he kind of also admitted that he doesn't really believe in its feasibility. And celebrities. So I was super surprised to see Kristen Bell has been investing hmm. in it. Um, Interesting. Leonardo DiCaprio. My guess is they're very excited about the idea. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, the planet save. Yeah, Leo, I expect that from Kristen Bell. Yeah. I don't know. She started like a CBD body butter mm. line. So like maybe she's just like on that eco path, eco chic yeah. path. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Bill Gates is skeptical. Last time we chatted, you and I were joking that this kind of feels like the Theranos of the food industry. <laughs> I mean, not to jump to the punchline here, but why do folks think this is not scalable? Well, honestly, my sense is not that many people think that. Okay. Um, because they don't. <laughs> or why do enough. you think it's not scalable? Yes. Right. <laughs> well, organizations like mine like Food and Water Watch, other related food policy-oriented organizations are skeptical. But I've talked to many people who have just randomly heard about this topic and they're all excited about it. And I'm like, that's because you don't know the details. <laughs> it just sounds really hopeful and it's super exciting. And it sounds like an amazing potential piece of the climate puzzle, you know? But there's the issue of biochemistry and the laws of physics that we don't always discuss. And another thing I will say is a lot of the advocates, so like the Good Food Institute and the head of Good Meat, they talk about investment as though that is proof of concept. So they say, you know, why would large investors buy into this if it wasn't possible is essentially what they'll say. But for me, because I have a background in the food industry and what happened with Bayer and Monsanto, and I've read extensively about their different strategies, I understand that if you don't understand science, you can convince someone to believe something without the proper understanding. So I bring this up because Theranos raised $945 million dollars you know, unicorn investment, whatever. And this was all predicated on this idea that they could create this, you know, blood test that was never feasible. And they continued to raise money knowing that its feasibility was quite limited because the people on their boards were not experts in the subject. <laughs> so you could be a chef, like Jose Andreas has been involved in this in some form. Previous USDA Secretary Dan Glickman has been involved in it as well. and. You can be involved in the food world and not understand synthetic biology or biotechnology. And that's important because, yeah, it's a great idea, but is it feasible? And if you don't have the scientific background to understand it, there's a major possibility that you're easily swayed and convinced by what someone who wants you to support the product is saying. So I would just say when you're reading about this topic, think about who is talking. So if someone from the industry is talking about how the science works or how they've created a solution, yeah, they want that to be what you think. If a scientist who has no buy-in, no money invested in this is talking about this, if he's doing, he or she is doing a technical economic analysis, what have you. I would be much more inclined to listen to someone who's not invested in the industry than someone who is. So I want to say that because there are a lot of articles now that will come out and it's all exciting. And they're like, we've proved all the skeptics wrong. We've solved this issue and whatnot. And my perspective is, yeah, they want you to believe that they solved the issue and that you shouldn't believe the actual biochemists who are talking about this, you know? So to get to the actual answer, 
Um, <laughs> there's several reasons I don't really see the feasibility in this, but to talk about the science of it. So animal cells, like animals, excrete wastes. These wastes are called catabolites. Catabolites, I might be pronouncing them incorrectly. Um, I'm not a biochemist. So they excrete these wastes and these wastes are toxic. We're talking about like ammonia and lactate. What ends up happening is the wastes that are excreted when the cells proliferate slows their growth. And a, there are a couple of ways, a couple of potential solutions to this. They could switch the kinds of bioreactors they're using. They could use a perfusion tank to extract the waste in theory, but that would kind of mess with their whole efficiency game because these tanks are much smaller and you'd have to use a lot of them and like that would take land density and it would be very expensive. Or you can genetically engineer the cells to produce less waste and grow faster because the waste inhibits the growth of the cells and the ability to make this like mass quantity essentially. So if you were to genetically engineer them to produce less waste and grow faster, then in theory, you could make it something work. But the thing about that is when the cells grow faster, they produce more waste. So there's kind of like a, you're mm. battling the waste cells function and produce and excrete. So there's a lot of discussion in the pharmaceutical industry about how they've been dealing with this issue for forever and haven't been able to really find a viable solution. It's very expensive, which reminds me of Theranos because the experts kept going to Elizabeth Holmes and were like, yeah, this isn't feasible. We've tried it. Don't you think we've tried to figure out how to do this? There's a similar flavor, but few people understand this science and I think really want to understand it because the topic is so appealing. It's spoken about with such confidence, but also another element of this is cost. So there's constant conversation about how by 2030, we'll have cost parity for this product XYZ. And it just, if you look at the numbers, it just does not seem likely. So the only lab-grown meat product that is on the market right now is in Singapore, and it's not even full like lab-grown meat, it's combined with plant-based. It's a, it's a hybrid product. And they're, they're selling that at a loss. They've admitted that. They're selling it at a loss. Any meat that they're going to sell right now, if it ever goes to market, which it very well could because the FDA did approve Upside Foods chicken in November of 2022. So it seems possible that it could come to market, but affordability, I mean, the cost parity is just, it's going to take forever. The cost of building these bioreactors at the scale they're discussing is so astronomical that it just, I'm very skeptical that they're ever going to be able to make it affordable. Whenever it comes to market, if any of it does, if a small amount does, it will likely be sold in really boutique industries. It's not going to be this panacea of climate animal solutions that it claims to be. So you don't think it'll ever be a mass market play? No, I don't. Yeah. yeah. Knowing what I do know about it so far, I like would not wish that upon the world anyway. <laughs> but um, let's dig into some of those concerns yeah. around health and safety. What do you see as like the big like, uh, I wouldn't put this on the market? Well, <laughs> At a very basic level, 
these companies have provided no transparency about anything. So we'll start with that. <laughs> I'm, you know, inclined to say I'm not convinced that it's going to be good for me. But I actually thought about this a lot because we can get to technical food safety issues and whatnot. But I also want to talk about how in the literature, there's so much discussion about sustainability, how it's going to be amazing. There's very little discussion about nutrition. There's discussion about um, excitement, about how oh, we could make a steak that is low in fat and higher in protein, and we could infuse everything with B12, and like it could be a more nutritious kind of meat, essentially, is what they're suggesting. But I think about everything holistically. So when you eat a cow from pasture that lived out in the sun, you know, that lives how cows are supposed to live. <laughs> It's so complicated because I remember learning and finding this detail fascinating about how there are all of these medicinal plants like on pasture that humans cannot eat. It's poison to us, but the cows can eat them and we can get that medicine from eating their meat, which I thought was fascinating and made so much sense intrinsically. And the sun, the vitamin D, you know, what have you. For me, when you're eating a piece of meat that came from pasture from a happy animal, you're eating like that is pure nourishment on so many different levels. And it's so bioavailable. And that's the thing that I think is important. Are any of the nutrients from this product going to be actually bioavailable to us? I don't know. You know, we already know that when you compare something like a choline supplement to choline and eggs, the choline in the eggs is far more bioavailable than the supplement or iron, you know, like iron supplements versus animal-based team iron right. just absorbs differently in the body, which we have no idea what's going to happen there. We also have no idea about allergenicity. We have no idea, like, if there are any allergens in the process of making this. The industry itself is so speculative that we know so little in terms of scientific literature available to us about food safety or nutrition. So it's all hypothetical. So what I'm saying is a lot of it is skepticism because there's just so much we don't know. So the things we don't know, for example, are they're likely going to genetically modify or genetically engineer these cell lines to make them grow more in theory. How does that translate to meat in our body? What will that do? We have mm. no idea and there's no tests. <laughs> Well, what's in the nutrient solution that they're making? They're going to have to likely genetically engineer yeasts and bacterias to help these products proliferate. What about those? How are they going to maintain sterility in these bioreactors? How are they going to make sure it's completely sterile? They say, we don't use any antibiotics. But even in alcohol production, when you use bioreactors, you use antibiotics. They say there's no antibiotics, no antifungals. How are they controlling the risk of contamination from viruses, prions? Because we're dealing, you know, with animal viruses, animal prions, mycoplasma, fungi, bacteria. Like, how are they keeping these out? And when you speak to scientists, they're highly skeptical of their ability to do this effectively, particularly when you're dealing with animal cells and large bioreactors we've never used before. There's just, there's so much we don't know about the safety. I read some company said, oh, we figured out an alternative to the fetal bovine serum. 
for the beginning stages. We just used off the shelf chemicals. And I was mm. like, what chemicals? <laughs> How is that better? <laughs> yeah. What do you mean off the shelf chemicals? So there's a lot of inputs in this product. We have no idea what they are. And there's no transparency and there's no required transparency and there's no proper regulatory oversight to clarify what's in it. So this might be a philosophical question, but at what point does the animal like muscle cell or the bovine fetal serum that's taken as the source material, at what point does it become not animal cells anymore? Oh, you mean like when it becomes a stem cell? Oh, okay. So... That's what I'm not clear about. So they take the source material. Do they create a stem cell out of it? Or Yes. Yeah. Okay. They, they take the muscle cell and convert it into a stem cell because then what you can do is make all different kinds of cells from the stem cell. So you can make like the fat cells for the meat and the protein and differentiate them. Whoa. But from my perspective, that's all animal. It's animal <laughs> deconstructed. I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, in a way, that's like kind of magical that modern science has figured out how to manipulate cells in that way. Yeah. Um, From like a scary sci-fi perspective, it's also if you're like replicating cells to no end, isn't that the definition of cancer? Yeah. So that's, that's another question when it comes to the engineering process. Because I've been following this so long, There was a time where there were early patents that you could get your hands on. They were largely redacted, but you could read between some of the lines. And I remember reading some of the early patents where they genetically engineered the cell lines to proliferate indefinitely so that they would be either pluripotent or totipotent. And they're immortal, which sounds very sci-fi. But in the process that they were describing, they were describing the use of potential oncogenes, which are cancerous. They were describing different like transcription factors, activations that happen that make the way a cell functions cancerous. They they were. So there there is that risk. Are the cells gonna be potentially cancerous? I don't know. Would they be cancerous? Like they could be cancerous cells, but what happens if you take lab-grown meat and you cook it? (laughs) If you eat it, Like, what is going to happen to you? There's just so much we don't know. Um, Mm. But in U.S. regulatory law, it's illegal to sell cancerous food in that way. I would hope. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That seems pretty basic. Yeah. It's called the Delaney Clause, just for specifics. Good to know. What about on the sustainability end? Have there been any sort of life cycle analysis done or any comparisons of lab-grown versus conventional meats? Yes, there have. There have been a few. The main one that is discussed was sponsored, paid for, done in collaboration with the Good Food Institute, which is the primary cell cultured meat lobbying organization. They they support alternative proteins in general, but they're they're very excited about cell cultured meat. So I take what they say with a grain of salt because you'll read about this study and then the nuances of the study are there are many that you will easily miss if you didn't actually read what happened because in the life cycle assessment they're assuming that conventional meat is produced 
in a regenerative way and comparing it to cell-based cell cultured meat, they're, the, the way they did it was intentionally very confusing in my opinion, because conventional isn't regenerative. You know, like the wording was very confusing to me, but essentially they found that it looked like cell cultured meat could be more sustainable than beef, maybe not pork and poultry. But if you think conceptually about it and what I read from other people is essentially there's land, water, and then energy, right? So the idea is it'll use less land. Seems feasible to me based off of how much land we use for me. Water, they basically have said it could use less water, but as of right now, we just don't know. <laughs> they don't know. Because <laughs> you have to use a lot of water in, in this production process. And then when it comes to electricity, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of layered elements to this. So if all of the electricity comes from renewable energy, which is how the techno-optimists talk about it, they're like, it'll be 100% renewable. We're going to use so much less energy, you know. If they use 100% renewable, then yes, it will be markedly more sustainable than meat production. However, if they're using fossil fuels, then we have a scenario where actually conventional meat production could be less climate warming than this production because they could be producing so much CO2 progressively and CO2 has a much longer warming potential and stays in the environment much longer than methane that mm. it could be worse. So, you know, it's just funny because we're talking and we're just playing with so many hypotheticals because it's just so new. Yeah, we just haven't seen it done at scale. Yeah, who knows if we ever will. Yeah. So the um, the approval for Upside Foods that happened in November, have we heard like a release date or anything of when they'll actually push out a product? Well, they've gotten FDA approval. They need USDA inspection and approval. They need a certificate of inspection and label approval from the USDA. I don't know how long that will take. It seems plausible that they could have some on the market, but my guess is it's going to be such a small amount. But I will uh, add the detail that the FDA approved it, and they said essentially that Upside's lab-grown chicken is safe for humans to eat because it doesn't differ from regular chicken on a cellular level, and hmm. they didn't have any further questions about its safety. The right way to have gone about this would have been to do a food additive petition, which enables lots of public comment. They just were like, all good. No sign for them. Yeah, nothing. On the policy end, I know you've done some work on the Hill. What's the sentiment among policymakers around lab-grown meat versus conventional versus plant-based? Yes. It's funny because... There's really not that much discussion about lab-grown meat on the Hill. I mean, the, the best piece of information I can give you is in September 2022, the White House released some sort of press release where they, they suggested they were in favor of it. But they didn't, you know, allocate any funding or anything. They were just like, this will be part of our solutions list or something. And then there's an article about Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about lab-grown meat being bad. Um, but otherwise, there's really just not that much of it. Like, I don't think that is the primary priority for a lot of politicians. 
what this topic ends up becoming part of is this sort of culture war about meat and America and mm. America, you know, the image of steak being this a very American thing and then having certain states be so reliant on the meat industry. And then also this kind of political division. So there's a lot of discourse between the right and the left. And, you know, the right is like, we can't destroy our meat industry. We're pro-meat, whatever. And then the left is like, climate change. We need to do something. They both sort of miss the point <laughs> in, a, in a way. You know, they, they kind of like cancel each other out. And then there's just no discussion about like, how do we do any, you know? I mean, there's definitely politicians who are pro-plant-based. I mean, Cory Booker is who comes to mind first. And in the Green New Deal and whatnot, you know, there are discussions about reducing meat consumption. It's very complicated. So I don't want to simplify it. But we also have, you know, so much of our dairy and meat industry is both consolidated and heavily subsidized. But now we have certain Republicans in certain states who are interested in the consolidation issue because that hurts their farmers when, you know, the monopolistic meat industry is affecting their ability to produce and make money. So I think a lot of it will come down to money <laughs> and what makes the most sense economically. And hopefully that aligns with a more sustainable approach. If you were to wave a magic wand and you could make up the policies, just like directionally, where would you want to see our food system go in terms of meat and proteins? You know, it's such an interesting question because I remember being at the COP conference and having a discussion with this man who grew water lentils. His industry was about water lentils, protein. And he asked me, he said... So how do we how do we make sure we have whatever pounds of protein to accommodate the world or something? And I just sat there like, <laughs> how much? I'm one person, um, but you're asking me hypothetically what would I do? So I think that there is a place for meat consumption because I just think it's really nuanced. It's very cultural. It can be traditional. It can be you know ingrained in indigenous communities, indigenous culture. I mean, it's just I would never wave a wand and be like, no meat. Mm -hmm. I also think nutritionally, there is a place for meat, depending on each person. I believe in bioindividuality. I think we're all very influenced by where our ancestors came from and what they ate. I just it's so complicated. So meat is part of it, but we'd all be eating less meat. That would be for sure. We'd be eating less meat, and the meat we'd be eating would not be from a confined animal feeding operation. And it would not be from animals who spent their entire lives suffering. It would be from happy animals. But in order to make that happen, I'm trying to tell you what I would do and also be realistic. <laughs> We'd have to eat a lot less. And then we would convert all of our commodity grains, corn, soy, etc. I mean, I'm people can eat some corn and soy if they want to, but you know, but we would be growing lots of different kinds of plant-based proteins because not only do they have an amazing nutritional profile and they're amazing for your gut microbiome and beans, like great, but they're so good for the soil. They would be so regenerative, you know, so I would, I would want us to take all the land that has been depleted and destroyed and grow as much 
plant-based protein as we could in a regenerative, like polycultural, agroecological way. And, you know, the problem of having this discussion is people are going to be like, well, how's that going to work? How's that transition work? You know, and I do not have an answer, but something has to change. So there is going to be an uncomfortable transition eventually. Like that is the truth. And if you're going to ask me, like, is that going to ensure that people get enough protein? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, it'd be great if we grew a lot more hemp, like hemp is a great source of protein and super, um, you can do all sorts of things with hemp, which would be cool. Like just if we could grow a lot more things that served multiple purposes, that would be great. Wait, what can you make with hemp? I just know of hemp milk and like hemp seeds, I guess you could put in things. Yeah, no, well, I I eat hemp protein, like they, they put it in a powder. Oh, pure hemp protein. It's great. If you like that earthy flavor, which I do, my mother does not. Um, you can make so many things. Um, you can make clothing. You can make plastic alternatives. It's a very versatile crop. Yeah, I, I have heard of like hemp clothing and like hemp ropes and things like that. But just in terms of food, I haven't thought of it like eating it. So in terms of the regenerative, okay, I know you said you don't have all the answers, but have you heard anything about potential subsidies or more subsidies going in the direction of regenerative farming? Oh, subsidies. What a place. (laughs) Um, I'm going to not answer your question directly, but I will try to answer it in some way. Um, No. Well, it's, it's complex, right? Because so this is the year of the farm bill. And, and the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, gave something like $20 million towards soil and regenerative ag projects. So I don't know if that counts as like subsidizing, maybe a little bit. It's such a small amount in retrospect to what we need. But it's something, you know. So the farm bill happens every five years. And it allocates huge sums of money to agriculture for the next five years. And there's a lot of lobbying right now. Particularly, there's one coalition called Regenerate America that's doing, it's a coalition of all these organizations that are fighting for regenerative agriculture. So there's that. The farm bill could be more regenerative. It could provide more regenerative subsidies. I certainly hope it does. And the farm bill is typically bipartisan, for better or for worse, because there's a lot of concessions made on both sides. You know, it's, it's, making an agreement is like pulling teeth. But um, (laughs) there are Republicans now that have essentially said, well, I wouldn't call it regenerative agriculture, but if implementing new soil practices helps the farmers, we are in favor of it, essentially. If these alternative agricultural methods happen on a voluntary basis and they're more profitable for our farmers, we consider it, but we're not going to call it regenerative. That's interesting. So framing it as soil remediation or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Well, and when we talked last about profitability, Mm -hmm. this is another thing I want to bring up just because this is going to be just a hot topic conversation for years to come. A lot of the times the politicians and the producers equate yields with profitability. Now, the thing with regenerative agriculture, there are some studies that suggest that regenerative agriculture, while it may have lower yields, it has a higher profitability because 
first of all, you might be making something that has a higher premium, like organic has more label recognition. You can sell it at a higher price. But secondly, because the inputs required are so much lower, you're spending so much less on inputs. That's another thing to keep in mind as we move through the year, because fertilizer prices were so high last year mm. at, a, at like an astronomical number for farmers. It was, it was very difficult for farmers in the U.S., and it has gone down a little bit, but it probably won't go down significantly because the prices went up really high because of everything happening in Ukraine and Russia and with economic sanctions and the higher price of natural gas, et cetera, et cetera. And also because like all the industries, the fertilizer industry is consolidated. <laughs> There's just a few of them and they control the price. Like most of the food business. Yes. It's not exactly. a shock. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's interesting, though, that like, maybe this is the moment for just like, you know, the pandemic was the moment for sourdough and home baking. <laughs> this will be the moment for regenerative as fertilizer prices. I mean, we'll take it if we can get it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the other thing like about yields is we talk about yields constantly when we talk about hunger and whatnot. I don't have the numbers. I don't know for sure. But I know that in the U.S. we produce more food than we need. Mm. So how much lower are the yields actually? And what does that look like if it doesn't all go towards cows and pork? Right. And what does that look like if it's not all, you know, hyper-processed? I don't, I don't know. There's so much we don't know. I feel like we need to deconstruct the whole system <laughs> to figure that out. But yeah. for the moment, we have little pockets of innovation and little pockets of people like you and me poking holes in the system. Yes. Like <laughs> yes. Well, as we come to a close, fun question. When this lab-grown meat stuff actually comes out on the market, would you try it? Absolutely not. Um, no, no brainer, no interest. Um, I do kind of think it's gross. It's my personal opinion. <laughs> um, I don't know enough about it. Like I, for me, I am an ingredients girl. What is mm. in this? What are the ingredients? If I don't know the ingredients and I know they're genetically modifying all these different things and transcription and growth factors and all these unknowns. No, I wouldn't eat it. <laughs> Love the honesty. I feel like um, ingredient labels, instead of the the physical ingredients, also need to put like, what are the processes and like yeah. the machinery that this thing goes through? Oh, yeah. I mean, learning about how seed oils were produced last year was a real eye opener oh, for God. me. Oh, man. I'm like just in in that world now. I'm like, all right, tossing out all the... I know. Well, it, it also bad. sucks for eating out because all restaurants yeah. use seed oils. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is. It's a bummer. Well, on that very fun, <laughs> sad note, <laughs> thank you so much for being here. I feel like there's yeah. like a gazillion other topics we should have you come back on and talk to. Um, but this was so fun. Thank you for educating us. And thank you for all awesome. the work you do. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body and I'll talk to you next time.